What is crackalacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dampa Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel, this time. Uh, doing a little bit of an impromptu news and rumor catch-up because we have a ton to get to. Figured I'd do it on Spot- um, Spotify's Green Room because I'm by myself and why the hell not? I, I want to talk to people in the chats and Eli's already talking. What is up? Eli, um, a lot of things have passed us by. A lot of news have dropped. We've got extensions to talk about, some rumors as well. Anyone who's in here and wants to talk about anything, I will, of course, oblige for that as well. For our regular listeners, there will be no Monday mailbag, which has been being published on Tuesday for scheduling reasons. That will be moved till Tuesday of next week for anyone who cares, which is why I'm also here tonight, because I figure why the hell not um, come talk to you all on Locker Room and record it this way. I'm going to start with, I'm going to go in order of recency first. And Terry Rozier is, uh, Noah's in the chat screaming 11. I said it's an impromptu late night thing. Noah, I'm here. I'm talking hoops. How about your welcome? Jeez, man. Um, I'm about to get off these Terry Rozier takes um, and Marcus Smart takes from Eli. So yeah, this is a good, it's a good place to start. Terry Rozier got a four year, $96.2 million extension is what it, Roughly comes out to its report is ninety seven because that's how agents really just get their, um, you know, get their players. You know, look at the wording. Pay attention to the wording on crowd trash with everything. Marcus Smart in turn signed a four year seventy seven million dollar max extension. These are both considered max extensions because you're only allowed to give them a percentage raise based off their current salary. So that percentage is the same. And um, since Terry Rozier was making more than Marcus Smart, his extension could be. Larger, And when you sort of look at the net sum of these two, Marcus Smart, uh, yeah, 125%, Eli, it is, it's, I think it's, it's 20 or 25. I can't remember what it is. It's around that, it's around that number, but Marcus Smart. So if you look at these in the totality of the next five years, because each of these players are under contract for another season, Marcus Smart comes out to like five years and 91, 92 million. And now Terry Rozier comes out to five years 115-ish million. It's a little bit less than that. That is sort of wild to think about. And so with the Rozier extension, I think people had sticker shock when they looked at it. Uh, Dan Devine wrote a great piece at The Ringer where he pointed out that it's really barely even a top 20 deal among guards right now. I don't think most people view Terry Rozier as a top 20 guard, so I think it's fine to have that initial sticker shock. For the Hornets specifically, there are two things I'm looking at. Is One, I need to see the fully the full details of this deal, because this year specifically, the guarantees, whether they're partial, whether they're team options, player options, early termination options, they've been sort of trickling out even behind the scenes later than normal. And so I'm just curious to see if there's like a partial guarantee in that final year. Is there a team option involved here or something? Because that will change the context the way we look at it. Um, I will though note that I think Terry Rozier is incredibly valuable because of how plug and play he is on the offensive end. Um, He does have some off-the-dribble juice that fell off over the course of last year um, as he went forward, but there was a time where he was knocking down a huge portion of his pull-up jumpers. But I think it's more important that this is someone who, on incredibly high volume, knocked down 43.3% of his catch-and-shoot triples last year. When you're playing beside LaMelo Ball, when you're playing beside Gordon Hayward, you want someone like that. He's going to compete on defense too. I don't think he's a great defender, but he's going to go up against, he'll defend up to the two, even though he's, I think he's six one. So there's value in that. Um, and you, again, you might get a little bit more off the dribble juice from him. And the volume at which he does it at again is, is absolutely monstrous. Last season, there were only eight other players who cleared 20 points a game while shooting as well on twos, 51.2% and threes, 38.9% as Jalen, um, as excuse me, as, Terry Rozier. Those eight players were Jalen Brown, Steph Curry, Kyrie, Nikola Jokic, Zach Levine, Kawhi Leonard, Damian Lillard, and Nikola Vucevic. Now, Terry Rozier is not on the same level as any of those players. Um, He is not the same level of an off-the-bounce threat. But he still hit a a higher effective field goal percentage on his pull-up jumpers than Devin Booker. I'm not making the case that Terry Rozier is a star. I'm looking at it from the Hornets' perspective of, I think they view this as a player who is useful to them. They were probably scared of what he was going to get um, in free agency next summer, which is kind of shaping up to be like a not too spicy summer. And I'll get to that point with the Marcus Smart deal. Um, and so you were probably going to get, there was probably going to be like a four-year $80 million offer coming at him anyway, or something in that realm, if not greater, just based off who else projects to be available. Um, and the other thing is, I think they're looking at this and saying, okay, because of the way he plays, this deal is never going to become 
impossibly difficult to move. We know there's no such thing as an immovable deal in the NBA, but this shouldn't age into a John Wall conundrum here. As Eli did point out with Terry Rozier in the chat, uh, the value seems high because last season was his first at that efficiency. And I do agree. That was also kind of his first season in that role. They saddled him with a little bit more on-ball responsibility at times um, during his first year in Charlotte. So, And they were still trying to figure out things in their offense um, in the first year that Kemba Walker wasn't there. You had Devontae Graham basically as the primary ball handler for you, and he was fantastic that year. But that's different from having LaMelo Ball, Gordon Hayward. And I do think, to Eli's point, it will Rozier's value sort of dropped off after that Hayward injury followed by the lamella ball injury he needs those primary creators around him that's fine though uh i think this is a deal i don't know how it's going to look from a team's perspective in years three and four i think for the next two or three years when lamella was still on his rookie scale deal when the hornets still have that grace period of trying to figure themselves out i think it's fine can you build a contender with that deal on your books just knowing the limitations the hornets will inherently face i honestly don't know but i don't think it's going to i don't think it necessarily helps them pull off a trade I don't think it's going to be completely immovable. Now, you sort of juxtapose that with the Marcus Smart deal, which I thought was fantastic value just for the Celtics here, because had you let him get into 2022 free agency, this is someone who can defend basically four positions, even though he's under 6'4". Um, and he's improved. I don't think this gets talked about enough. He's improved his three-point shot. And it's not just to the point where he is hitting these wide-open catch-and-shoot triples he has, and look, it does take him a little while to get into them, and defenses are giving him this shot. So I, I will recognize that he is not, you know, at the same level as a Damian Lillard here. But he's shot 37.8% on off the dribble threes over the past two seasons. That is that is huge because it makes him less of a limitation on offense. Um, I still don't think you want him running the pick and roll, even though he can do that. There is some surgicality to his drives. But they have Dennis Schroeder now. I also think Peyton Pritchard will help them here. Had you seen that dude's handles in Summer League? Please, though, can we stop calling him the Caucasian Kyrie? That is just flat-out embarrassing, and his handles are not even close to, to that good. That that nickname that started cropping up in the social media sphere made me made me cringe uh, a little bit too much. So I, you look at that and this Celtics deal, I'm honestly shocked that – maybe not shocked, but I am a little bit surprised that Marcus Smart signed it. I think some – fans analysts were surprised that the Celtics offered it because uh, everyone was under the, not everyone there were people under the guise that the Celtics were going to go out and try and chase Bradley Beal to pair with Jason Tatum because those two were tight it was just impossible with Al Horford's money on the books and this deal if you have four years and 77 million left of Marcus Smart um, after this season that is a deal that can be traded in a, in this in a snap over the offseason there are teams that'll give you assets for that the Warriors are always linked to him, so when the Warriors invariably finish in the lottery, um, they'll probably be touting that lottery pick to try and get Marcus Smart from the Celtics as Boston looks to clear cap space for Bradley Beal. I don't, I don't actually think anything like that goes into it. I think this was Boston looking at, he is, without question to me, there's Jason Tatum, there's Jalen Brown, and then Marcus Smart is your third most important player. I know people might want to cite Al Horford. Maybe some will want to try and be trendy and go the, the Al, Al Horford route, um, excuse me, the Robert Williams the third route. It's not. I like. Don't even bother making a case for Josh Richardson. Is definitely not Dennis Schroeder. Uh, so I just think that's great value for the Celtics from a team's perspective. You lock him up and then think about the the rest later. Brett Yule has said, "I really like Scary Terry, but hopefully he plays like 2017 if they make the playoffs, not 2018, 2019 against Milwaukee." You know that 2018 playoff run, uh, Brett. It was good from him. Uh, that 2018 playoff run. I don't know. How I'm looping two years into it. But he wasn't as efficient as people really thought there. Uh, so, I, yeah, you know, you want to see him prove it in the playoffs, and we just saw Charlotte get absolutely annihilated in the, the play-in game this year. I think they're set up to be better. Give me a full year of LaMelo starting and healthy. Hopefully Hayward's able to stay healthy. I would have liked to see them sure up their center rotation a little bit more, but I love P.J. Washington lineups with him at the five. I think Mason Plumlee helps them. Miles Bridges was great last year. I'm actually, you know, after watching James Booknight get his soul just obliterated by Davion Mitchell in the summer league. I actually liked what I saw from him. So I'm hoping he gets some burn in Charlotte as well, who also picked up Kelly Oubre Jr. Gives them some length and size on defense. It does seem like with him, they're going to lean into the smaller lineups where you're going to see PJ Washington more at the five. So Charlotte's a team to watch. And I think, I think Terry Rozier is fine there for there. Um, I think he's fine there right now. I do think that's a deal to look at and see how is it going to age with Marcus smart. It's more, 
of a no-brainer to me. I just if he was willing to take that money, looking at the 2022 free agency class, which I do think starts a different type of discussion. We're seeing teams and players sign extensions. I think for one, if you're a Terry Rozier, maybe you looked at what happened to Dennis Schroeder this year and saw his market crater. And I don't. I think you've put together enough of sample size where you're not going to be settling for the mini mid-level exception type money. But if you're getting this much guaranteed cash, um, even if it's only a three-year guarantee, right now, he's taking it, securing that financial future. Maybe Marcus Smart feels the same way, especially where I do think teams look at what the Knicks did this summer in free agency. I think that organization, among others, even Chicago, who acquired Lonzo via sign-and-trade, who acquired DeMar DeRozan via sign-and-trade, a lot, I feel like these teams are starting to look at the star market and saying, stars are going to be traded. Stars are going to be signed and traded. They're not just going to be outright poached in free agency. And I think teams are now maybe letting that approach leak over to the non-stars, where maybe you wouldn't have given Marcus Smart an extension because you want to keep the, the illusion of, hey, if we got rid of Al Horford's money or maybe we could work out a sign and trade for Bradley Beal, um, I, I think that teams are now understanding it's going to take real assets to maybe get stars almost at every turn. We're going to see very few of them leave for nothing unless they're age 35 Kyle Lowry and you can get them for Goran Dragic and, and Precious Achua. So I think that's something to watch. And I think 2022 free agency overall is just going to be another you know, offseason where I don't know if we'll be as disappointed, but we need to keep an eye on which restricted free agents are going to, or restricted free agents to be, are going to sign extensions before the start of the season. And just look at what that market's going to look like. We saw it this past year where not just guys, restricted free agents to be, were signing extensions like a, a Jason Tatum or a Bam Adebayo. It was a LeBron. It was a Rudy Gobert. Um, we saw Paul George sign an extension. There are players who it seems like the more popular route right now is going the, you know, they know they can be extended after two years. And so they're going with three plus ones, and they're hoping to extend off the top of that number. That's just a guess by me. I don't know if that's, you know, I haven't had any NBA agents tell me that, but just looking at what Paul George did, even what Kawhi did this summer, it feels like that might be becoming the more popular thing. Brooklyn Nets stars, by the way, Kevin Durant is um, already signed an extension. Kyrie is expected to sign an extension. I wonder if James Harden will wait another year before he does it, but that's going to be something to monitor there. Before I move on to, I want to talk about Joel Embiid's extension. We do have a speaker request from Brian Langford. Brian, how are you doing? Hey, man. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, you know, I, I like to hear what you were just talking about. Um, I've been preaching this around the world the last three years. It's all about getting the money right now. Like, prime example, like Carmelo, he's got so much money throughout his career. Now he's about winning a championship. And I'm fair with that. Everybody goes, oh, win a championship first. No. Secure the bag first. Get the money first. A championship, to me, my opinion only, is a bonus. If you get a championship, it's a bonus. Rather than that, this is a job. This is your career. And and real quick, I know a couple of guys, I'm not name dropping, that retired from the NBA. And I know them personally, and they say, I wish I would have taken that deal in 2000 and blank. And I'm like, and I was like, why didn't you take it? They said, I, I was trying to win. And I was like, well, don't most of you guys say your championship rings anyway when you retire? He was like, bingo, get your money. That's just my opinion. Um, thank you for, for weighing in there, Brian. That's, you know, I don't disagree with him. And I know Eli's in the chat saying it's not about the money. Competitors don't think like that. I do think once you get to a certain point, but I do think part of being a competitor, and Brian brought this up with Mello, is that you think you're so good that you don't that you can have both that you can have the max contract let's say or max extension if we're going off the 20% raises here and also win and <laughs> uh Brett Yule says in the chat Bobby Portis has just exited the chat that actually made me laugh thank you thank you Brett and so when you're dealing with actual star players i think you're less likely to go after um take a pay cut to win a championship i also think that players in general aren't going to want to take these pay cuts because all they're doing is giving discounts to billionaire team governors. And if you have enough cachet, uh, if you're a star, you can sign a deal and you can force yourself to get traded later. You have, look, if Giannis went to the Bucks tomorrow with five years left on his extension, I want out. Milwaukee's probably going to facilitate it. It's the same thing with Dame in Portland. And so I think as always, stars are sort of up against 
a different type of window. For guys along the lines of Terry Rozier, look, I think we see that a little bit more where those mid-tier guys might be taking pay cuts. Yeah, there, there are some of them like, you know, Trevor Ariza has been, until recently, a mercenary his entire career, just taking the money from wherever it's from, and then he'll just get traded midseason because that's like a rite of, of passage now. But I think those guys have the more limited earnings windows because if they get an injury or if um, their stock goes downhill like a Dennis Schroeder, we just saw how much a few months can change everything for him. He goes from betting on himself, turning down, I think it was four years and $84 million, if I'm not mistaken, on his extension, but some sort of number. It might have been 73 guaranteed, whatever it was. He bet on himself and the, and the market um, cratered. And we're, we're, we're seeing, I think, if you look at these other guys and say, well, what if that happens to me? You know, I don't think a Marcus Smart needed to take an extension to make sure he got paid. Again, my bet would be that he would have gotten more on the open market next year. Um, but if you like where you're at, if you're on a team that you think even has a pathway to contention like a Smart and he's a non-star, you can easily talk yourself into prioritizing the bag then. And then a guy like Terry Rozier, I don't think he looks at the Hornets team realistically and thinks, I'm going to win a championship there. I just don't think he looks like that. I think money matters to these guys, but that it's an also a case-by-case basis. And that's where I sort of land on this is I don't think there's really – a blanketed thought here. I think different things are going to matter to different guys. The one that we've seen that's almost, you know, fail proof is as they get older, as they get into the latter parts of their career, they're going to prioritize winning a title at some point and maybe take pay cuts. I know uh, Brian in the chat mentioned um, uh, David Wesley did that, but David Wesley, excuse me, David Leslie. Wow. Uh, but again, it was after, you know, his primary earning days. He did. He signed an extension with the Pacers at one point, I believe. So these guys have a limited earning windows. And I would side if I had to with Brian and say, if I'm an NBA player, I'm prioritizing the bag. I'm not taking a pay cut for anything, not to play with my homies, nothing. I don't want to give these billionaires discounts. But I also understand where Eli is coming from, where I don't think their competitors wired like that. We've seen, you know, even guys earlier in their careers uh, where they're they're non-stars, but they're maybe going to go to teams where they think that they have a better chance of winning. Do you think that Otto Porter couldn't have gotten more than the minimum of someone this year? That's another issue of someone's stock who's plummeted. But he's going with a Warriors team where he's going to get playing time and they might have a chance to win. So he's probably not like the perfect example there. Uh, but th- there are guys who, before their primary earning windows are over, will go to more so winning teams. I did want to get to this Joel Embiid extension. I think I don't think anyone was, uh, or at least in my opinion, they should not have been surprised by it. But uh, Joel Embiid signed a four-year, $196 million extension. Um, what I thought was most interesting about it is that it is fully guaranteed and that there is nothing inoculating the Sixers against uh, a disaster where right now a lot his primary extension – his last extension, excuse me, there was um, it was incentive based. It was it, the Sixers were protected in the event that he was injured, missed a ton of games. He's had a clearer threshold in certain seasons. The fact that this doesn't have it matters to them because if you look at Embiid, last season misses twenty one games. The season before that misses twenty one games. In two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen, he misses eighteen games. In 2017-2018, he misses, he misses 19 games. In 2016-2017, his quote-unquote rookie season, he misses 51 games. And then we all know that he missed the first two years in full of his career. Um, he's had foot issues. He's had back issues. He played on a partially torn meniscus this year in the postseason and was still dominant. Uh, there's risk here. There's real risk. He is not – look, the, the timeline on a normal player, he is about to enter his age 27 season. You have Joel Embiid. Um, for another half decade, six years, that's fine. It aligns right with the uh, the meat and potatoes of his prime. But th- he does seem like someone who you could pencil out for at least 15 games every single year, and he might not be fully healthy when the playoffs rolls around. That matters. At the same time, he was probably the permanent MVP this year. I had him as a leader until he suffered his, was it a knee injury? I can't even remember what, what midseason injury he had. But before he missed time, um, I had him as the MVP over Jokic. Had he played in more games or as many games as Jokic, I might have had him as the MVP. Anyway, I think he is the Sixers' most valuable defender. There is It is a symbiotic relationship between he and Ben Simmons. I think if you removed Ben Simmons from the Sixers, uh, there'd be a lot more pressure on Joel Embiid on the back line, and the Sixers' defense wouldn't be as good. But part of the reason why I wouldn't vote Ben Simmons Defensive Player of the Year, at least looking at last year specifically, I think a lot of what he does is aided by the fact that you have Joel Embiid behind you. Um, so, again, symbiotic relationship there. 
Jerome B was so dominant, though, and has become so great on the defensive end while also just honing his offense to where the past two seasons, no, he's not been the most efficient from three. This year he was, 37.7%, don't get me wrong. But we've kind of seen him take these off-the-dribble jumpers, torturing a bunch of different ways. I still think he needs a player like, I don't know, a Jimmy Butler. If only the Sixers could have someone like him, the the face-up wing or guard or just playmaker who you can milk in in crunch time. And as Brett uh said in the chat yeah it was a partially torn meniscus i think he, and he had a hyperextended knee that was the injury he had mid-season eli Ed's indeed needs the uh perimeter star or wing i'm 100 percent with him there as as i was just saying that being said he can be the best overall player on the championship team or if you want to go the the 1a 1b route or even just co 1a's i think you know it's a situation where let's look at it this way in milwaukee uh Giannis is clearly the best player on that team and was during their title run, but they ran a lot of the primary offense through Chris Middleton in the crunch time of the playoffs, and he initiated the two-man game with Giannis. And so that's, Joel Embiid need that, needs that player. Ben Simmons is not it, because Ben Simmons, despite what that video showed from his trainer, um, you don't have guys playing up on him on screens. Like, there's not a lot that you can do with a Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid pick and roll. That was objectively one of the funniest videos ever, by the way. I don't really like taunting players because they deal with so much shit, but I don't know why anyone would have posted that that video. Anyway, it puts the Sixers, they didn't have leverage here, is my point. Is Joel Embiid has become great enough to where he gets, he has the leverage to get this deal. Um, but there is risk involved there, and I do think that it increases the urgency with which the Sixers need to go out and find him the player he needs. It's invariably going to have to come at the expense of Ben Simmons. But that sort of leads us to the next thing I want to talk about. There was an update from Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher, who, and yes, they are my employer, so there's bias there, but he's absolutely been killing it this offseason with his um, reporting. When you look at what came out before free agency, he had so much shit right on the money. Uh, But it does seem that despite interest, this is per Jay Fisher from Minnesota, Golden State, Sacramento, San Antonio, other teams, um, that, and this is, quote, league insiders continue to believe that Simmons, for now, is expected to remain a sixer once training camp opens on September 28th, barring a change of temperature with Damian Lillard in Portland. Uh, I kind of came to expect this a few weeks into the offseason when it became clear how low Simmons' value was around the league. There were, if you talk to people from Portland and float the idea of C.J. McCollum and stuff, for Ben Simmons, they get reticent about the end stuff portion of this. And we have a speaker request from Noah. I'm going to get to you um, very shortly as I finish this thought. That to me is just, I get it because of his offensive vanishing act, act in the semifinals this year. At the same time, I view Simmons as the positive in that trade because of his youth, because of what he can do on defense. If you surround him with enough shooting, no, I don't think you can build a team around him like the Bucks did with Giannis, where he can be that guy. But he is a preternatural passer, and he can really set up guys for threes based off his dribble penetration. If that's what his value is, if you can't even get CJ McCollum and stuff, like let's just keep moving and wait. See if you could build back up his value closer to the trade de- deadline. The catch-22 here also is, for CJ McCollum specifically, there's a debate whether in a vacuum, let's say Damian Lillard's staying in Portland for the next two to three years. Let's just say that. You would have to debate internally if you're the Sixers whether you want to make that deal. Anyway... But now that the Damian Lillard stuff is floating around in the ether, why are you going to do something that ostensibly helps the Blazers keep Damian Lillard, who should be one of your primary trade targets if you are giving up this mid-20s all-defense type player who has the potential, again, surrounded by enough spacing to be a really impactful offensive player. So that puts them in a tough position. And then when you look at the rest of the market, because of where the Sixers are in their timeline, now specifically, after extending Joel Embiid, you can't just do business with teams that are going to offer you picks as the primary uh, asset incentive here, where I think the Spurs might be the best example of this. They might be able to straddle two lines where if they're using DeJounte Murray or and or Derek White as sort of the main attraction and then including Devin Vassell and however many picks it takes, whatever, that's not picks prospects they're not going to mean as much to philly a a team that's trying to win now so then you get into a scenario where there are certain trade partners um i would probably throw golden state in there at this point because what what does philly want with andrew wiggins um what do they want with jonathan Kaminga or moses moody or james wiseman especially when when joel beads there now you need a third team to start facilitating 
And now this leaves you in this weird area where if Bradley Beal doesn't want out of Washington right now, which it doesn't seem like he he does, you can wait on that, or you pull the trigger on a deal now where you're getting like role tired role player type guys, maybe attached to picks and prospects, and you're trying to straddle those two different types of packages. And that's I think we you know we just mentioned or San Antonio, that's a team that could do it. Sacramento, if the Sixers like Buddy Heald and, and Harrison Barnes. Maybe you could get a Halliburton or a Davion Mitchell out of that, plus other picks. But if you're trading Ben Simmons, I don't think you can justify having the main acquisition, the the meat and potatoes, second time I've used that phrase in this podcast. I don't think you can have that be a Buddy Heel, a Harrison Barnes, uh, maybe a DeJounte Murray. Just he would be really good in Philly, by the way. He's shown a little bit more in his jumper. He's just one of the best, um, you know, wing defenders flat out, not even just guard defenders out there so maybe him but even then like you are punting on someone who's just an all defense given with defensive player of the year chops who's shown that he's a great passer and for me and i'll i'll throw the talking stick to noah in a second after this i just don't see the rush when Embiid and simmons um lines with them on the court last year obliterated opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions in the regular season so you have a little bit of a cushion if ben simmons doesn't report to training camp if he tries to hold out then things can get iffy, awkward. We saw it with James Harden in Houston. Ben Simmons doesn't have that same type of leverage, though, because he's just not hes not as good. And unless there's a team that's going to bowl over the Sixers right now, I would advocate where, yeah, you're going to have to just lean into the awkwardness. And that's not me complimenting Daryl Moore to the Sixers front office. I just think it's a matter of fact because the returns right now don't necessarily make a ton of sense. But Noah, you now have the the talking stick. Noah, are you there? Yes. Hey, Dan. What's up? How's it going, Noah? It's going good. So just to, to echo what you were saying about you know Ben Simmons, obviously we talked to, um, earlier last week about how probably CJ McCollum isn't going to be traded from the Blazers. But I think the definitely the extension for Joel Embiid, and given the fact that I, I'm actually very surprised that they gave him such a you know lucrative deal considering his injury history. He hasn't had a a full healthy season is even his entire career, especially last year was his MVP type season. He didn't play and he was playing injured and still was managing to dominate. But I I agree with you in the sense that I feel like Ben Simmons right now, we already know how bad his trade value is, but it doesn't seem like the Sixers are in any type of rush to, um, to trade him, especially given the um, off season that they had bring in Andre Drummond. um, They are obviously, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're obviously thinking that, you know, Dwight. Ha- they just brought a younger Dwight Howard in, in all honesty. Um, but no, no offense to Andre Drummond, of course. Um, bringing Andre Drummond and also not doing much on the offensive end in the offseason, I don't think – I don't think they're basically in a situation where they can trade Ben Simmons. And he doesn't have any sort of leverage at all. If Ben Simmons were to walk into training camp um, come September and say, I want out, he would be, he'd want out for the wrong reasons because he's already um, he already has his extension from his rookie extension. It's not a sense of him not of the organization not treating him well, but rather him not improving enough for the organ for the organization standard. So, I, in all honesty, I don't see Ben Simmons. Be, I see Ben Simmons being a Sixer by the end of next season. Oh and, wow! Yeah, I I honestly think so because. You just you just um, finished the season as the number one the number one seed in the um, in the East. Yes, the Hawks completely obliter- obliterated you unexpectedly because of Ben Simmons' offensive woes. But I'm inclined to believe that I don't think they're gonna make that the end all be all for him. If he doesn't have a improvement, if he doesn't have improvement over the season, I I do agree with you that they're probably going to trade him at the end of the season, but they, it makes no sense to trade him mid-season, especially since even during the regular season last year, we knew he wasn't offensively, he wasn't doing anything offensively. Either there were nights where he was putting up less than 15 a game, so um, it's just in the playoffs that becomes way more exploitable. So I definitely think that Ben Simmons is going to be a sixer. Um, I don't know how, if the city of Philly wants that, but um, for sure, I think the organization, there's no rush to trade him. And I don't think any other team, if you're adding Ben Simmons, you're adding him to a team that has championship or contention, asp- in contention aspirations. 
And if you're the Sixers, what you want back from him for him is an all-star caliber player. And if you're going to get picks, you're not going to get picks from a, it's not a bad team that you're going to get a player from. I don't, I don't know what player you would trade for Ben Simmons if it's not Bradley Beal, who doesn't play defense. If it's not TJ McCollum, who doesn't play defense. If it's n- Buddy Heald, who is just a defensive liability. and like there's, You're losing a lot, so I don't really see um, the Elton Brand and the Sixers take, making a move to get rid of him any, anytime soon. I think he's going to be, come 2022, he's going to be a, in Philly still. Um, Noah, thank you for those thoughts. I'm going to remove you as speaker. I agree with, uh, everything you said there. The one thing I guess I'll question is whether Simmons will still be there by the end of the season, my choppy, the one, I think actual disagreement I would have, I don't know that you need to be a team with contention aspirations to get Ben Simmons. I think if you're Portland and you're rebooting even a little bit with Toronto, even with San Antonio, he's 25. And so if you believe in him, uh, I, I think you can view him as part of your longer term or maybe the central hub of that. The one thing I definitely do agree with you on is the leverage isn't there. And I know that clutch sports is great at manufacturing leverage. Uh, however, with four years and 140 plus million left on this deal, that's not viewed league wide right now as a net positive. He could refuse to show up to training camp. Um, that's fine. I don't know that that's going to force the Sixers hand there because they would have to accept bottom dollar at that point. This isn't a James Harden situation where um, he was still viewed as this great star, this huge asset on his current deal they could still turn if they wanted to Philly turn around and get maybe one of the packages that we were discussing um that being said I just I'm with Noah where I don't think he has the leverage to to force his way out of Philly we do have another speaker request so I'm gonna hand the talking stick to Rob Hillman in a second but I want to pose this to the room and to our listeners who are hearing this as a podcast let's say Ben Simmons is still on the Sixers in a year there was a school of thought before this season that the Sixers should trade Joel Embiid and rebuild around Ben Simmons um, or retool, not rebuild, because they were still expected to be really good. Surround him with a bunch of shooting, another creator, wing creator, and go that route. Is there any path, anything realistically that could happen this season if Ben Simmons finishes it in Philly that would reignite those types of talks? And full disclosure, I was actually one of those people uh, leading into last season, I'm no longer one of those people with even with the Joel Embiid injury wrist caked in. Simmons has not been a beacon of health health himself, by the way. But just seeing everything that Joel Embiid did, I don't know how you would ever revert to that route. But I'm just curious: does anyone see a feasible path, or what would need to happen over the next year? No, let's non-catastrophe division. Yeah, Joel Embiid having both his legs amputated that would definitely be an issue. Um, but for now, I'm going to hand the microphone to. Rob Hillman. Rob, can you hear me? Yeah, Dan, I love that. Yeah, you got to get rid of Drummond. You got to sign J.J. Redick. You got to bring back Rocco. They had a great team five years ago. I, I, I'm a Timberwolves fan. I live in Minnesota. We would love to have Simmons because he would fit great with Cat. But the problem with Philly is Elton Brand. They had a great, they had spacing four or five years ago. Then they brought Jimmy Butler. Then they brought Al Horford. Then they, Richardson. Like the the roster construction in Philly has been awful in the playoffs. And when we think, when I think about Simmons, he needs to be paired with a spacer, a a five who can shoot, like Cat, maybe Jokic, trade him, like Simmons for Porter would be my something I could see happening. But in Philly, if you just spaced and let Simmons play the small ball five when Embiid is on the bench, he is a wrecking crew when the lane is open. He is he is so awesome. And he'll, I think he'll figure the free throws out. Giannis did in the playoffs, 17 for 19. And so I... I I, I, from Minnesota perspective, we would love to have him, but we'll be okay without him. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> we, we are always optimistic because we have to be. Um, but I think Philly could work it out and they just have to have spacing and shooting and open lane because when he is a driving 10 times a game, he is awesome. 
thank you for those thoughts, Rob. And so let me start with the one disagreement I have with you. I think Jimmy Butler was fantastic for Philly, and he was initiating a lot of their offense by the end of their postseason run. Um, whatever happened there, I, I, you could definitely put some of this on Elton Brand. Uh, there was something, I think Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, I think it effect- effectively came down to that iteration of the Sixers chose Ben Simmons over Jimmy Butler because Ben Simmons wasn't content with his role beside Jimmy Butler when it mattered most. Um, and you probably weren't going to keep Jimmy Butler if you had that sort of Ben Simmons stuff in the in the offing. And it didn't sound like Philly was willing to go for five years with Jimmy at the time, which you absolutely should have done. So that's on Philly. The Al Horford stuff, that's on whoever was in charge, that Elton Brand, whether it was um, you know Josh Harris pushing for that, that was just, oh my God. That was an experiment where I was morbidly curious about it and I wasn't just like, so down on it, but you were looking at it like, I only want to not take my eyes away from this because it makes no fucking sense. Um, so I, Brand deserves a lot of criticism there. I think you're also right where um, Simmons needs to be surrounded by a ton of spacing. I don't think Philly has given him enough looks as a de facto small ball five to say that that can't work. I'd like to see more of Ben Simmons as the screener without the ball. We saw Giannis lean into that role recently. Again, he's a different type of offensive threat, a better one than Ben Simmons is, but we've seen him kind of um, acclimate himself to some more off-ball stuff, and I I think that's important. I think, you know, Ben Simmons can mirror some of that. Um, What he really needs to play beside is, I think, because where you have Giannis is probably just one of the best help defenders of all time at this point when you look at the ground he could cover. He probably needs to play beside, like, a big who's not really a big and can be a great help defender because Ben Simmons is not... Like he's this awesome one-on-one guy, and I think he's fine as a help defender, but I do think that sort of separates him from the Giannis tier of defense right now is the havoc that Giannis can wreak away from the ball. I don't see doing the same. I don't see Ben Simmons doing the same. So if you had, uh, you know, um, I, I think big man-wise, Carl Anthony Towns would be a great fit for Ben Simmons. Not defensively. I think he'd help Carl Anthony Towns a ton there. But if you put him beside a Maxi Kleba, that's someone who could help um, those minutes. But then it comes back to this point of, well, then, you know, Maxi Kleba is not Joel Embiid. Conanthi Towns is not Joel Embiid. That's the pairing that's really awkward right now. It works in the regular season, but unless Ben Simmons is going to develop any sort of extra range, uh, you, it, it's going to be awkward come playoff time. Unless Joel Embiid wants to take a step back and be just more of a pick and pop guy, which you can't do that to Joel, to Joel Embiid, especially now when you know you don't have that other wing creator to even justify displacing him from the ball. So Eli said he cringes when people compare Giannis and Simmons. I'm kind of there with him. I still would like to see that experiment that Rob was alluding to where it's just Simmons and a bunch of shooting. And I do think you need like a, where with Giannis, he can kind of be the lone big. I don't think Simmons is built to be that way. So you need a, a complimentary floor spacing big who's going to give you a lot of help defense. And I, I, I Maxi Kleva type is the first one that, that comes to mind. I'm not saying he would be the guy that changes everything for Ben Simmons. But that feels like the ideal construct within which Ben Simmons would would need to operate. I'm going to be fascinated to see where he winds up next because I don't think he's going to be there long-term in Philly. Uh, like I said before, I don't see a pathway to them ever choosing him over Joel Embiid at this point. I, I think the Supermax is, is proof of that. They could definitely move that um, when he's eligible to be traded again. But I, I just after the season he had, I, I don't know how you would even get to to that point unless something happens that would make other teams not want Joel Embiid. Uh, another thing I want to talk about that was just in the the news, uh, the Kevin Durant, Draymond Green interview on Draymond Green show um, Chips, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. I think the big pull everyone's taking from it is they said that Bob Myers and Steve Kerr kind of fucked everything up because of the way they handled um, the Draymond Green, Kevin Durant, kerfuffle, yelling match, whatever you want to call it, against the Clippers. One, I can't believe we're still talking about this when that was like three years ago or whatever it was. And two, the other thing that really gets me is, um, does it matter what Steve Kerr and Bob Myers were doing? I don't think they handled it properly. I want to make that clear. Uh, Pandering to Kevin Durant. That's effectively how they handled the situation. They suspended Draymond Green. They wanted him to apologize. Uh, they were more concerned about Kevin Durant staying or making it so that they weren't the reason Kevin Durant left than trying to actually fix things that had been festering clearly within the team. That is 100% on them. But were they physically 
restraining Draymond Green and Kevin Durant from hashing it out like they wanted to, if they just needed to have an aired out uh, cathartic conversation, like Draymond Green said, that could have happened, you know, outside the arena. In the, it could have happened, whatever. No one was stopping them from from doing that. So I don't understand how you can let all the blame fall at the feet of Bob Myers and Steve Kerr. I think that was just a situation that Kevin Durant didn't want to be there anymore, and that's that's okay. It seems like these are two guys, and Draymond and Kevin Durant were friends now, um, and that's great. But as Marcus Thompson, I believe it was, said on an athletic podcast recently, that just probably weren't friends then, and that's part of the reason why it deteriorated. I'm not placing all the blame on them, but that was just – talk about deflection from that conversation is just the one thing I didn't get. And you're not going to find – I'm not defending the way Bob Myers and Steve Kerr handled it. This, the Draymond Green suspension was, was so dumb in the moment. Um, we have a question in the chat where someone asked what – Rookie stenches, uh, rookie stenches. What rookie extensions do you think we are going to see from the rest of the 2018 class? So we've already seen an extension for Luka Doncic, Trey Young, and Shea Gilgis Alexander. We're eventually going to do a podcast on this, probably. So I don't want to get like super deep into it. Um, there aren't a lot of locks after that because of there are these guys that you could maybe argue are like near max or very expensive players who. Is there a point in locking them up now? I think you look at you know the two guys in Phoenix, Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton. Are either one of them signing for less than $20 million a year? No. I don't know that either of them has the leverage to get a max. DeAndre Ayton put together the best stretch of basketball of his career when it mattered most for Phoenix in the playoffs. So he has some leverage in negotiations now. But if they sign an extension, I'll be very curious to see what the numbers are for them. I would think if I had to estimate um, if I'm Mikael Bridges, I'm not taking less than like four and 88. I mean, even you look at what Terry Rozier just got. They're two different players. But if I'm Mikael Bridges, knowing how valuable I am on defense, I want that type of money. So if he's not getting $21, 22000000 million per year, I doubt he would sign. DeAndre Hayden's more complicated. I would still say he's the less valuable player compared to Mikael Bridges. Uh, that being said, I think he has to get at least $20 million a year in extension for him to sign because there will be a market for him next year amongst teams with cap space. Other names that stand out to me, I don't think Jared Jackson Jr. will sign one just because he's coming off a year. He missed most of it with injury and then didn't shoot all that well from three. It's clear that he's really important to their offense because those ultra-deep threes open up things for Memphis like crazy. Uh, but coming off that type of a season when he still fouls a ton on defense, you don't necessarily know if he can defend the five consistently at this point. Are you even playing him at the five consistently? That's something Memphis has been reticent to do. They still have a lot of you know finding out with him, um, discovery to go with Jaron Jackson Jr. And so unless he's just signing to get some security and the number is super team friendly, I'd be a little bit shocked if he ends up signing an extension. Colin Sexton's the other, another tough one. Um, there was a report from Jason Lloyd of The Athletic leading into free agency that Colin Sexton was very much available in part because the Cavs like Darius Garland and of Colin Sexton's extension eligibility. I don't know what you pay Colin Sexton. I do think that Colin Sexton has become underrated. People are still harping on the fact that he can't be the primary playmaker of an offense. That's, you know, I think it's true. He's also not a point guard. Um, They're harping on the fact that he doesn't have like the super efficient off the dribble game, which is true. He had an effective field goal percentage sub 45 on pull-up jumpers last year. I totally 100% get it. But he's like a souped up, younger version of Terry Rozier on offense. Someone who has some surgicality to his game when he gets in the lane and he hits a lot of threes and doesn't need to have the ball in his hands to hit them. Um, He is just the second player in NBA history uh, to average more than 24 points per game while knocking down more than 50% of his twos and 37% of his threes before turning 23. The only other player to do that is Jason Tatum. Different players. Jason Tatum's way more valuable. Colin Sexton is good. That's just really what I'm getting at. And when you see the Terry Rozier extension as a baseline, not his rookie extension, obviously, but if he got four years and 96.2 million, whatever it is, and if that's all guaranteed, which I'm hoping this podcast doesn't age super poorly, I gave it the entire day to see if there would be any further reporting that trickled out. You're Colin Sexton, you're seeing that. Why would you ever sign for less than like four and 110 if that's the going rate for guards who can shoot and score i honestly just i i don't know why you would um 
so yeah, there's like, that's just, I'm going to be fascinated to see what he gets. I doubt he signs an extension though, because if you sign him to an extension, then you can't really trade him this season because of the poison pill provision. Um, do have a couple questions in the chat. I will get to both of you in a second. We're just going to wrap up this segment. The other one that I'm really watching here is Michael Porter Jr. I think he's a no-brainer max, and just based off what he did last season, um, he's a perfect fit beside Murray and Jokic. And even after Murray was injured, Michael Porter Jr., a lot of his buckets still came off assists, but he had the ball in his hands more, was taking more dribbles per touch, and his efficiency was still pretty damn good. I think he's proven that he's just going to get that money if you let him reach the open market. Now, if you're Denver, you probably want to make sure he doesn't get injured. And if you think you have the goodwill built up with him to just wait because you can match whatever offer he gets in free agency, maybe you want to make sure that back stuff still isn't an issue because that crept up towards the end of the playoffs last year. That's kind of the last guy I'm interested in. Kevin Herter, some guy, uh, some guy. Kevin Herter gives you a little bit more off the dribble pizzazz that I think people credit him for on offense. And he's a good shooter. I just, when you have Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, when you've signed Bogdanovich under contract for three more years, two more years after this upcoming season, uh, they got to look at and figure out who they're paying, what's going to move forward long-term, because I don't think they pay all those guys. Miles Bridges is another one. He had a spectacular season last year. Charlotte's been giving out extensions like crazy, and I'm just, I'm, they, they extended Terry Rose here. So they're not afraid of sort of locking themselves into guys longer term. I kind of almost expect him to get one now, unless he's asking for an astronomical amount of money. Um, that's probably it. I'd be curious to see if Dante DiVincenzo signs an extension, but after having that injury and I'm him, I might bet on myself based off what Milwaukee's offering and Milwaukee probably wants to cheap out just based off how concerned they've been with their tax bill. Um, Landry Shamit probably isn't getting one from Phoenix. Robert Williams might be interesting in Boston, uh, but they do have Horford under contract for another year after this one, even though it's partially guaranteed. So if Williams wants real money and maybe he's looking at Jared Allen and thinking, I could play well enough to get that. Uh, one, I don't think Jared Allen played well enough to get that, but you probably want to, maybe you're going to make that wait. And although I don't know, like they extended Marcus Smart, so I don't think they're as concerned about 2022 cap space or flexibility, let's say, as, as people think. So those are just sort of the names that bandying about. Of, of all of them, I don't know that I expect any of them to get an extension. I think my best guess might be Miles Bridges. And Michael Porter Jr. comes close just because you know what his market is going to be. And so Denver could also look at it as, well, why wait if he's going to get max money? Anyway, Rob Hillman asks, is Memphis taking tanking? And that is something I wanted to talk about because Memphis has been trading all over the place. Um, they acquired Rondo and Patrick Beverly at one point from the Clippers to get off of, of Eric Bledsoe. And then Daniel Oturo was involved in that one as well. They then sent Patrick Beverly to the Timberwolves to take a flyer on, I guess they're technically taking a flyer on Juan Hernan Gomez, but to take a flyer on Jarrett Culver. Um, if you're Minnesota, that's interesting, just because you traded Cam Johnson, what was the pick that Cam Johnson, and Dario Sarge to get Jarrett Culver, and then he kind of flamed out. I think the best flashes he showed was as a rookie when you were using him at point guard, and there's obviously not the flexibility to do that, even though they had backup point guard minutes available. I'm fine with them sort of selling their losses there. I think Patrick Beverly's a great fit for what they're trying to do, can play off of Everyone, Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, and then is still, he's going to compete on defense. And we saw that he can be effective during the playoffs still on the defensive end. For Memphis, though, yeah, Rob, I don't know if they're tanking. They're clearly not concerned about winning right now. When you look at taking uh, Brett Yulsa's 24% from three for Culver, uh, yeah, that was difficult. He did shoot better on catch and shoot threes at one point. I think it was his rookie year, it might have been last season. So, I still sort of believe, but yeah, this is I don't I don't begrudge Minnesota for doing this, even though given how great Cam Johnson is now and how well Dario Sarge played for much of last year before his injury, um, that trade does not look so hot for Memphis. Though taking on Bledsoe, who's no longer there, obviously Stephen Adams, getting rid of Jonas Valanciunas, they're a worse team overall. I do find it interesting that they've decided Jarrett Culver is a better wing prospect or wing flyer than Justice Winslow. Um, they obviously had to get rid of him as part to decline his team option as part of the deal that brought them Bledsoe and draft compensation, which put them in position to move up and get Zaire Williams along with getting another future first round pick. Um, and I like Zaire Williams, by the way. He might be more ready than we thought based off how he played in Summer League. I'm trying not to take too much away from Summer League, though. Uh, dude can really score uh, from, from what I saw there, though. They're clearly not prioritizing it now. And I think that's okay. A lot of people were 
up in arms, I guess, because you look at how good John Morant is already, and you're sort of wondering, well, you made the playoffs the past two years, exceeded expectations. Why wouldn't you be sort of going more for now? And look, you can fall into a trap that way. We saw it with the Phoenix Suns years ago. Um, we might see it with some teams now where they think that they're better than expected. Let's look at the, what the Hawks didn't do. They made the um, conference finals and then didn't go out and try and pull off this blockbuster trade or do anything aside from talent retention with John Collins and, you know, making moves on the margins. DeLon Wright, getting Gorgie Jang after the Onyeka Kungu injury. You don't want to overreact to success. And I think you look at Memphis, they were not close to title contention. It was cool that they made the playoffs two years in a row. Great. They were a first round, they were they were a first round stepping stone. That's essentially what they became. They're trying to angle for something bigger here. If they believe that Zaire Williams is going to be off the board at number 10, or maybe they had their eye on, on someone else in that spot who's taken, you know, maybe they thought Jane um excuse me, maybe they thought that Davion Mitchell was still going to be there or something. I I don't know. But you're taking these big swings and hoping you hit. And Desmond Bain is another guy. Um, who they acquired around the draft last year. He ran a lot of pick and roll in summer league. Maybe they're hoping to kind of catch fire in a bottle with him on the wings. They're clearly on the hunt for a star wing. When you look at them drafting Zaire Williams, taking Jared Culver, having Desmond Bain, and they're trying to find it. And I, I kind of, I kind of dig it. Um, we'll have to see how these moves pan out, but I think they've given themselves more bites at the apple and more room to experiment because now I think when you look at the players on the roster, um, you're not going to care about playing Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five over Steven Adams as opposed to Jonas Valanciunas. Valanciunas was clearly their second-best player last year. He was probably their most consistent player last year as well. And so it's a little tougher, especially with him in a contract year, uh, probably not the greatest optics or player relations to experiment with an Xavier Tillman, a Brandon Clark even, uh, still on the roster there, and a Jaron Jackson Jr. over him. Uh, so, and I, again, I like, they've amassed like a tidy well of picks. They have the Jazz pick in 2022. They have that Warriors pick loosely protected in 2024. They have all their own first round picks. So if they want to go out and make a trade, they can. Maybe one of these dice rolls sort of pays off. And I, look, now is the time to me to sort of take these risks. Even if John Morant, maybe he's not overwhelmingly excited about the direction that they've gone in after what happened the past two seasons, but he's still on his rookie scale contracts for another year, another two years. Now is the time when you need to take these risks, go through these paths of you know discovery, find if you can get that co-star. Because that look, that's what they're still looking for. It's not Dylan Brooks. Jaron Jackson Jr. hasn't put together enough two-way consistent play to be that guy. So they're still very much in the hunt for a co-star for John Rand. I don't know if they're any closer to getting him, but they're taking swings to try and get that type of a player. And they're still positioned to be flexible in the years moving forward. I'm not saying I love this, but I kind of understand the logic here. And the alternative is kind of being like the New Orleans Pelicans. Like they're trying to rush this rebuild around Zion. And I think they had the single worst offseason in the NBA this year, unless something changes. Maybe they use that trade exception, um, you know, to, to land someone this year. And it really helps. But to give up all they did, you know, they're down two first round picks, I believe. Um, you have Devontae Graham, but you lost Lonzo Ball. And you got Thomas Adaransky and Garrett Temple back for him. Just a bunch of weird stuff. So, and to not to, to grease the wheels of a salary dump and then not really put that flexibility to to great use. Um, I respect what Memphis did this offseason a lot more than I did with what is happening in New Orleans. Another question we had from Brett is what about the 2017 draft class? Are guys like Harry Giles and DJ Wilson just going to have to take two ways or or go overseas? Uh I wish I could kind of tell you there. I think Harry Giles belongs in the NBA, kind of really understated passer, really mobile on the the offensive end. You can kind of get away with playing him alongside another big. So I would like to see another team give him a chance. DJ Wilson, I was just never really enthralled by. The Bucks tried camping him out in the corner for stretches um, previously, before he was before they moved him, obviously. And he just never really spaced the floor too consistently. I don't really know what he was on defense, um, you know, the player that I'm interested in, anyone who listens to this podcast religiously will know this. Well, speaking of the 2017 draft class, that deal that Josh Hart signed, holy, holy crap. Um, the fact that it's one gar- fully guaranteed season with the two years after that, I was shocked, and I can't believe he didn't get more. I think his rebounding is overrated as good as it is there. So that's fine. And I know his three-point clip has not been super high for his career, uh, and spoiler, Brett knows where I'm going with this, by the way. So, um, 
I, I, I just, I can't believe he didn't get more guaranteed seasons. This was like a, it was a three-year, thirty-eight million dollar deal reported, but like, only next season is fully guaranteed. Is what it essentially breaks down to. So I am, I am shocked. I just from the 2017 draft class was just pretty wild that I was having because he competes on the defensive end, can basically go after positions one through four. So he shoots well enough from three where I think you can say, oh, look, this three and D guy we have. And as Brett said, are you just going to go Frank Nielakina? You're damn right I'm going Frank Nielakina. Someone sign this man. Don't use him as a point guard. He is shooting a fair weather clip from three, dating back to essentially the end of the 2019-20 season. Yeah, they're all catch and shoot looks. Great. Streamline his role. Don't put the ball in his hands a ton. And then have him defend his ass off because he does that. You can't just be like, oh, Frankie Lakina, go, go guard Trey Young for five seconds uh, after you, know, you, you were sat the entire game, essentially, even though you played like eight seconds in the first half or whatever it was. Use this guy as a 3 and D wing. Use him as a 3 and D wing. He has the size uh, to guard up to the three, the size and length. I am just, I'm not flabbergasted he's not signed because I kind of understand like where this is going. But man, you, some some smart team needs to sign him and use him in that fashion. And if the Knicks were smart, because the Knicks don't have wings, by the way. I'm like, I, like They have R.J. Barrett. They have Quentin Grimes. Um, R.J. Barrett's a wing. I'll give you that. R.J. Barrett is 6'7". Quentin Grimes is 6'4", I believe. Um, people think he could defend a bigger. Great for him. I'm, I'm not even knocking that pick, so to speak. I'm not even knocking their offseason. And I know Frank Nielakina is not the size of a traditional wing. But you need wings after letting Reggie Bullock go. Um, Evan Fournier is not a wing. Like, just I didn't think that Frankie Lakina was this no-brainer for them to get rid of. And, and and theoretically, he could still come back. I want to make that clear. But the fact that you prioritize paying Taj Gibson uh, over as your – he's like – he's if all goes according to plan, Taj Gibson is your fifth big. You have Randall, Mitchell Robinson, Noel, then Obi Toppin, and then Taj Gibson. I know Gibson did, did good stuff for the Knicks last year, but come on. Um, someone signed Frankie Lakina. That's the moral of this of this story. Uh, Rob asks, will the offensive player rule changes limiting plays where driving players view to create fouls or create space and end up tearing their ACL, i.e. Kawhi Jamal Murray? Uh, I'm not sure if there was a question here. Am I missing some part of that? I do think those rule changes were good. Um, um, I know they're going to be enforcing those unnatural motions by shooters this year as well. So I'm hoping that's addressed. Um, The last thing I actually did want to get to in this podcast is because I found it funny. Um, maybe it was two things, but the Christmas schedule, we have Hawks, Knicks at 12, Celtics, Bucks at 2.30, Warriors, Suns at 5, Nets, Lakers at 8, Mavericks, Jazz at 10.30. Now, I have gripes because I'm a nerd and I will have gripes, but I want to say that people need to remember the Christmas Day slate is about catering to the more casual basketball fan, drawing them in, um, fans that are still thinking about football and the playoffs coming up more so than the NBA at that point. So, you need to kind of view matches matchups through those lenses. Even wearing those goggles, come on. They missed a chance, in my opinion, to go Suns Bucks. I just thought that Matt, that could have been a little bit of a of a budding rivalry. I don't need to see Suns Warriors. If you guarantee me that Clay's gonna be back, sure. Put the Warriors on on television. I would have even Bucks Nets. That could be the rivalry. So maybe even go that route if you're trying to keep it to two East Coast teams. I don't think Boston needed to be on this slate. Um I don't even think that, look, if we're being honest, I don't think the Knicks needed to be on this slate. Yeah, they have Kemba, and they have Julius Randle, and they're good. So don't get me wrong, but I probably would prefer to see Hawks Sixers. That's another budding rivalry that could have been fun. I also think that, so I think Embiid is snubbed from here. They're obvious snubs, but I actually think that Embiid's team should fit into one of the Celtics or Knicks slots there. I would have loved to have seen, I think if I had my druthers based off the current schedule, I would have went Hawks Sixers, um, Nets Bucks. And then could you have gone like Lakers Nuggets? Like let's put the the MVP Jokic on this stage um, or even Damian Lillard. But I definitely think Embiid was probably the biggest snub here when you're looking at players. Jokic is right after him. I'm trying to – you have to go through the fact where I don't think that Jokic appeals necessarily to the, to the casual NBA fan as much as a Luka Doncic does. And so Jokic was my MVP by the end of last year. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. But I think that that was part of this. I still think they've missed just some cool opportunities here. I'm glad the Suns are on, but I, I think I think the Sixers and yes, I would have me. I would have liked to have seen Embiid and Jokic be a part of this um, at the expense of maybe let's say Celtics Knicks. Um, so yeah, but I understand 
why not both those guys would have made it. I really do think you missed an opportunity of, you know, Hawks Sixers to me would be more interesting than the Hawks Knicks. I know people think that there's a rivalry there. The final, final thing I want to talk about is LeBron tweeting, washed King after zero executives voted for him as the best player in the league. I don't really have a problem with it. Um, I think if he thinks that this was, you know, he's responding to something that someone of legitimacy said years ago, there might be an issue there because no one who's actually a legitimate NBA analyst that I've ever seen said it. And I believe that someone did the research on that. But LeBron is probably the greatest player of all time. He's one of the two greatest players of all time. You need to find motivation from somewhere. He is six months removed from being maybe the MVP favorite. I still had him beat at that point. But maybe being the MVP favorite there, he was just a finals MVP a year ago, essentially. If he has to do this to find motivation, fine. It's not an insult. Giannis or Kevin Durant would probably be my pick at this point, too. I have zero issue with it. I promise you, I'm really only mentioning mentioning this in jest. We're in the point of the NBA offseason where people are arguing about stuff that really, actually, I promise you, doesn't actually matter. So let's try and you know focus on things that are more important, come up with more creative ideas, or let's at least be realistic about what we're responding to. You want to talk about the LeBron James thing, the tweet, the Wash King? I'm 100% here for it. But like, you, can you really get mad at him for doing that? Because I'm not. I'm not going to, I'm not going to thank you everyone in locker room who rolled with me. This was fun talking to y'all. We are hardwood Knox. If you've not checked out our actual podcast, um, it's a pretty good podcast in my opinion. Sub pleasantly sub mediocre is what I would say. Um, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google play. Um, find us all over. Just search hardwood Knox. We're on YouTube too. Search hardwood Knox, Twitter at hardwood Knox. I'm at Danfa Valley on Twitter. We are here weekly. Normally, on Sundays at 4 p.m., we will not be here this Sunday at 4 p.m. Maybe do a Monday night mailbag if people are interested. It seems like we get a lot of stragglers in here for these midweek nighttime ones, so perhaps that's something to consider. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, I leave everyone with a shout-out to the one, the only, Frank fucking Neil Aquina. Someone sign this man soon, please.